Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Welcome to the third edition of the Truth to Power Show. I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and this is Radio Free Brooklyn. Today's episode will feature Alan Abadano, a good friend of mine for the past 25 years. Alan Abadano is a mental health counselor and artist whose interest in the human mind and belief systems has inspired him to visit over 50 countries. He has lived in Italy, Ireland, Japan, and Poland. His favorite place on earth, New York City, is also his hometown and current home. He is the author of The Other Son, and we're going to be talking about... Uh, his journey towards writing that book and in writing that book, and uh, as well as um, just in time for the holiday season, his views on Catholicism and Christianity, as well as perspectives on mental health and mental illness. So stay tuned for the full episode, and uh, hope you enjoy it. Thank you. So we'll begin with a reading from The Other Son by Alan Abadano. The um, Other Son is a fascinating look at the intersection between science, philosophy, and religion. The Other Son was the winner of the in the philosophy category of the 2015 Indie Reader Discovery Awards. So without further ado, uh, Alan will be reading some portions of uh, The Other Son and giving some commentary. Thank you. Okay, this is uh, from chapter 3. This is uh, Kodadad Jal, who is the Iranian scientist who moved to Oxford, England to, uh, to study. And um, he's trying to come to terms with his um, Muslim faith and uh, his you know, scientific reasoning. And he's trying to uh, balance the two. And in doing so, he's in trying to convince himself. He's also trying to convince uh, his roommate. And at the time, he starts developing into his best friend, Felix. Uh, Bessie, who lives in England, but he is from Russia originally. Um, so I'll skip. I'll uh, I'll read a little bit from this chapter, and then I'll I'll stop, and then I'll continue uh, further in the chapter, just for for time constraints. God created us with intelligence, with the ability to reason. It's what separates us from the animals. What you are suggesting is irrational. Two plus two can never equal five. It is the law of the universe. The universe is built on logic. God created the rules to which He is also bound. If he were to defy his own rules, where would that leave us? He gave us the ability to reason in order to come to understand his creation and to come to know him. If God takes that away from us, he strips us of the only tool we have of coming to know him. Man is limited by his very definition, contained in a time and place. God is limitless by his definition. How is it possible that something be two diametric opposites at the same time? It's not. Kodada Jal was visibly fired up but maintained a pleasant air while arguing. His recently appointed roommate, Felix Bessie, was sitting opposite him. Felix responded, For God, anything is possible. No, you're not listening. If everything were possible, then we would be betrayed by God. Isa, or, as you say, Jesus, was a prophet, not God. You Christians botched everything up. 
That is why you have such a problem allying your faith with your reason. Religion and science are not at, odd, at odds, my friend. They should be best friends if we were to have a truly developed understanding of the world. Okay, that's the end of that passage, and I'll, I'll jump forward. And basically, again, he's, he's a Muslim scientist, um, and he's, Islam has a great tradition of science, and he's trying to convince his friend Felix, who is Christian, that uh, Christ is to be respected, Jesus is to be respected, but he's not to be viewed as God because it's illogical. And um, so I'll fast forward a little bit later in the chapter. And, you know, Felix has shown a little bit of uh, discomfort with this notion. And Kodadad says, It's not something to worry about, my friend. Revelation is not a scary thing. It is a step in the right direction. Once you start to understand this, you will be able to accept all scientific knowledge as clues to the Creator's plan. You see, my friend, many people in history have found science the challenge to their faith. Kodadad waved his finger in front of Felix, who appeared to want to offer a rejoinder. He continued before giving Felix the chance. I know, I know, it's not just you Christians forcing Galileo to sign or the American Puritism, Puritans with their Scopes monkey problem. It is a problem of all people in all time. But to these hard-headed people, I ask, where would your religions be without progress, hmm? Without, and, let me, and listen to me now, Felix, science is progress, progress is God's plan. Without scientific knowledge, there are no technological advancements, true? Kodada didn't allow time for a response. Without technological advances, man does not break from the ancient hunter-gatherer lifestyle and form a community where ideas are shared. Without communal living, there is no civilization. No civilization means no writing. You following me? Felix nodded hesitantly. Kodada continued, And where are we without writing? We can't record ideas. There is no Quran, my friend, without writing. There is no Bible, no Bhagavad Gita, no Confucius texts, no, no anything. How does this religious knowledge, how does God spread to all without printing presses? Gutenberg was a scientist, an inventor. Sure, religion was everywhere before Gutenberg, but it was limited to ritual and speaking. It could not reach the common man in any meaningful way, allow them the full glory of his religion as contained in the sacred texts. I'm jumping ahead of myself. Let's go back again. If humanity never advanced, matured, God would never mature. A perpetual infant creator. Look at the uncivilized people, the uncivilized people's religions and how infantile they are. Why are the major religions in the world linked to the development of the major powers in the world? Why, my friend? Felix said nothing. I'll tell you why. Because scientific progress is religious progress. The most developed powers, the ones whose scientific knowledge allowed them to create the best swords, the finest catapults, the strongest walls, the fastest ships, these, these are the powers that spread their religion around the world. And then, after all science did to support their god, some have the nerve, the gall, to say, here is where it ends. Science and religion are now divorced. No, no, no one can say that if they truly understand it. What I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to tell you, is that there is no end to their bond because the bond is unbreakable. That's the end of that passage. And I, I basically, I'm very interested in the story of, in Genesis, the Adam and Eve story, which um, has several interpretations, especially in the beginning of Christianity. Um, and the Gnostic interpretation of the uh, Adam and Eve story was that the snake was actually God, that in telling Adam and Eve that to be like God, they would need to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And prior to that, they're animals. In the same way, and in, in, in the character says this in the book, is a dog sinning when the dog eats out of a garbage can and the dog was told not to? Of course the dog's not sinning. They have no understanding of sin or right and wrong. They're just told not to do it. And in the same way, Adam and Eve didn't have that knowledge. So the snake, in telling them to uh, acquire that knowledge, 
they did become like God. He was telling them to, um, you know, become like himself. And, um, and that's basically my interpretation of the, of the story of Adam and Eve. And, uh, you know, one of the primary uh, motivators for uh, the character of Kodada Jal. We're here with Alan Avajano, a good friend of mine for the past 25 years. And uh, how are you doing, Alan? Pretty good. Thanks. How are you? Cool, cool. So we heard a passage from uh, The Other Son, The Navi Road. And uh, first, before we get to that, um, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the beginning of your story. So uh, your upbringing in Staten Island. And if you want to talk a little bit about how uh, that informs your work, how your childhood and uh, upbringing in, uh, informs this kind of passages. Sure. Um, so I was born in Italy, um, but I moved to New York. My dad's originally from New York, and we moved uh, back in uh, 1984 when I was six years old. And we settled in Staten Island because it was a little bit more suburban, and we could have a backyard. Um, so I grew up here, uh, you know, the son of an American father, Italian-American father, and an Italian mother. So I kind of had a foot in both worlds, you know, early on. Um, and a very Catholic upbringing, but a very liberal Catholic Catholic upbringing as well. Um, I went to Catholic school for the first eight years, and then public school, and then I went to uh, Catholic uh, University at St. John's. Um, and I mean, we went to church every week. I was an altar boy. I was I was interested in my faith, and I was, you know, as I got older, uh, I was I was pretty passionate about learning more about it, um, and. So I guess that kind of got me um, thinking about why why do I believe the things that I believe, and um, so at what stage in your life did this process of interrogating the faith? What were you saying really started, or at what point did you think that you started to think to yourself, I have to kind of interrogate this faith or think? About I guess it? I mean in my teen years, I think I probably started having some doubts as to the actual. Um, you know, veracity of some of the things that I believed, I, mm-hmm. that I believe without question, the, the virgin birth, um, you know, a lot of things that didn't make logical sense to me, but I just took on faith because it was, it was told to me. So mm-hmm. I think in it, it was early on, it was, you know, 15, 16, but it didn't really do much. It just, it didn't really uh, make me doubt the faith if certain things were untrue. It just made me curious as to exploring more about it like learning that you know many scholars believe that jesus was born in the spring but we celebrate it at christmas time you know why was that did it really matter and then you start finding out that christianity supplanted uh, pagan religions and and christmas was saturnalia in the in roman times so it just ended up taking the place of that and again the italian culture had a tradition of, uh, you know, or the Roman culture had a tradition of having different, many different saints, a saint of the ocean, a saint of this, a saint of that. Different towns had their patron um, saints. And you find out that that was actually, you know, from from Latin times, they had their own gods. Um, so Catholicism came in and, and replaced a lot of um, of what was already there. Um, so at this stage, when you're starting to begin your process of inquiry into your faith, uh, what were the guiding uh do you use tax or because of this at the stages uh i guess around the early, late 90s so mm-hmm. this is not as prevalent the internet was not as prevalent to, but what did you use in order to guide you this pre-college as well so yeah it was it was kind of pre-college <laughs> but i'd say it was mostly during college that i started mm-hmm. thinking more about it um 
just exp you know living back to the Staten Island question li yeah. living in Staten Island living in New York in general you're exposed to a lot of different cultures you're exposed to a lot of different faiths and you start mm. picking up on you know everybody has their own faith system and all of them are are correct in their own ways so you start wondering like what is unique about my own uh what is true about my own when you when you, when you think it is true um so going into St. John's I went in there with a real desire to learn more about it and being a catholic university i had the it had i had the opportunity to learn you know directly from the source um a lot of my teachers were priests or um so that's i'd say it was in saint john's that i really started um reading a lot more about it and yeah the internet wasn't around um so just from books from school just reading the texts that were given to me was there um, any uh, particular texts or any particular Thing that you interrogated, do you recall any classes, any specific classes? Or there was, you know, there was a comparative religions class, but and, and they were all helpful in their own way, in just in kind of illuminating me to, you know, turning me on to the different faiths around the world, the, the similarities, the differences. Mm -hmm. um, but it was really the I, I minored in theology and and um, almost did I? Minor, I don't remember if I minored yeah. in philosophy, yeah. but I minored in theology and you know history, and they're all connected. Um, and in minoring in theology and, and, again, being passionate about it, I would ask my teachers after class, and many of them were priests, and, 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 and just starting to understand that these things weren't a given, starting to understand that the Gospels were written, you know, not contemporaneously with Jesus' Jesus's life. They were written 60 to 100 years later, mm -hmm. learning that there was only four Gospels in the um, accepted canon, but that there, there was a lot of other writing written at the same time called the Gnostic Gospels, which um, gave a different view of Jesus. So, learning, learning that um, those different views were, were voted out. Learning that a big thing was learning that Jesus's divinity was established 300 years after Jesus was crucified in Turkey at the Council of Nicaea. I think it was 325 when they were cardinals were debating his divinity. And they voted on it um, in the same way that we vote in democratic elections today, and it won by one vote. So something that's central to my belief system was only established by some men living 1,700 years ago arguing. Um, and another big point that really affected me was in talking to this priest who devoted his entire life to this, um, asking him whether the disciples and the apostles believed that Jesus was God or whether Jesus believed he was God himself. And he said, there's not much evidence to that. And that, that kind of blew my mind that it was an evolution of thought. It took hundreds of years for the faith to manifest itself in the way that we understand it today. Um, so growing up, did you feel that these kind of truths were not uh, were not promoted or do you feel like do you, what is your perspective on kind of coming to college and realizing all these kind of facts about your faith uh what is your feeling about how it's presented on the ground level um i think i think the catholic church my understanding of the catholic church i'm a big fan of the catholic church in many ways i think the catholic church gets a gets a lot of flack these days um you know the catholic church had had a, a very liberal bent to it 40, 50 years, you know, during the 60s and had the liberal bent, they were they were the social workers. They were traveling around, you know, they were working in poor countries around the world. So my exposure to Catholicism was in a in a fairly liberal-minded liberal family. 
and with very liberal priests and, and nuns, all great educators, all very learned. So I had a big respect for them, and, um, and I continue to to this day, even though I don't believe the same things uh, that they do. And I think, just again, in my education, both from uh, my parents and from um, the schools that I went to, there was always, there wasn't ever a, a desire to kind of hush, hush up any questioning. There was, mm. there was a, there was a, a, um, an atmosphere in which they, they welcomed questions. They welcomed that, um, that healthy doubt. Um, and many priests and many nuns had told me that they had experienced similar doubts. So it didn't make me feel ostracized or anything along those lines. It was, it was a comfortable process initially, um, what became less comfortable was internally as I started to lose my faith entirely. And that, and that came as a result of, um, you know, exploring it even further, traveling abroad. So now at this point, you're kind of going into the college atmosphere of uh, scholarship and learning about it and kind of reflecting on your childhood's experiences. But then uh, was there a breaking point? Was there any point where you realized kind of like with a questioning process, as you're saying, is healthy to any uh, person of faith. But then was there any story or element of um, a threshold where you crossed and you felt this is the this is the moment? Uh, no, I don't think there was any there was any one moment. Um, in fact, I think my <clears throat> understanding that I had become an atheist, which was a was a understanding in retrospect that it kind of one day dawned on me that I really didn't believe anymore, in yeah. God anymore, uh, let alone Christianity. It, it was a long process of slowly kind of stripping away these beliefs. And it was it was done without the desire to end up where I did. I'm very happy and comfortable where I ended up. Um, but I think there's a there's a there's a um, misunderstanding out in the world. that I think atheists are kind of uh, looked down upon as not really getting it. I you know had approached it from the same way that. I wanted to understand my faith better, and in doing so, it led me away from it, and I had to come to terms with that. It was a struggle, but then I ended up feeling okay with it, and I, you know, I ended up, you know, writing this book as a, you yeah, know, people ask me if you know yeah. the book came out of that process. I don't know if the book came out of that process or if that process came out of writing the book. I don't know if in in the writing of the book and exploring things to write the book and researching that I started to think differently about things. So when you first uh, conceived the idea of writing The Other Son, mm -hmm. uh, what what point were you there at that point? Like when you first thought, I'll write a book uh, called The Other Son or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, uh, you started the process of writing the book, uh, snapshotting that as snapshotting when you completed the book. That's a, that's a good um, question. How would uh, you compare that? I'd yeah. say I had the idea when I was fully invested in Catholicism. I was completely faithful, just starting to question some of the dogma but still you know as as faithful as they come um and i finished the book pretty much not believing at all and mm. you know the two things are linked but they're also separate and it was a long process in the writing of the book and it was a long process in in that in that you know personal evolution um and, and a lot of that was in living abroad and traveling abroad primarily in Japan and being exposed to Buddhism and Islam in the Muslim world. And, um, so you spent some time living in Japan and uh, in that time period you were writing the book. And then uh, can you tell a bit about how living in Japan or living abroad has informed 
your yeah. perspectives. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's this term, which I mean, I, I reference it in the book, and there's a passage that I'd, I'd like to read in reference to that. Um, and I, I, you know, I, you, you kind of experience it before you know what it is. And we're all culturally encapsulated. We grow up in these cultural bubbles where we see our existence as, especially as a as a white man living in America, you see your existence as the norm. And I was passionate about foreign cultures and foreign religions and had great respect for all of them but it was more as a a respect towards towards the exotic and you know i need to learn you know is eastern you know eastern philosophies are 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 interesting and exotic and i need to you know i i would i would better myself by learning about them but there were this thing over there and this is the norm and what Japan did, and it, it didn't happen the so first just, week, the first month, the first year. It happened, um, it took a good two to three years before really understanding that that's, that's their, you know, they see themselves as the norm. China, Chinese, when I traveled in China, like, um, I experienced some racism. I, you know, people would, you know, cabs would pull up and drive away. They didn't want to give me a lift. If I sat down on the train, people would get up and move away. I'd go to a, a rural town and, and people would just open, you know, open mouth gawk at me. And that's that entire experience was it kind of told me that there is no norm. There is, you know, we're all in this little bubble of our as, as much as we think we're not even New York with all its, you know, cultural diversity. We grow up in these little bubbles where we think this is the norm. And as much as we can respect that outside um, that outsider, um, we, we are that outsider to everybody else. So just to cover the timeline on this, so after you finished college, uh, it was then that you moved to Japan, and then so yes. it's kind of following the process of uh, inquiry through college and going to Japan and uh, going through the process of writing the book while in Japan, and then uh, when you returned uh, and after you finished the book and you were coming back, um, uh, what was the kind of uh, Synthesis, you know, kind of you snapshot a little bit from prior Japan. You had that uh, perspective of exoticism, and how that matured or enriched after you kind of began to complete the process of. Uh, I guess it just in the understanding that I was culturally encapsulated, and that yeah. everything that I understood and believed um, needed to be open to question, mm. and whether it was my religion or my, I think political beliefs especially in these times are a belief system you know the vast majority of us out there uh end up adopting the political beliefs of our parents i mean why is that because they're right nobody's right you know we 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 need to all as a society you know step back and say why do i believe the things i believe whether it's religion whether it's you know views towards race views towards politics we need to step back and then logically uh, reapproach them and ask: Is there anything inherent to these belief systems that lead me to believe them, or is it just a belief system? So true, so true. I definitely agree, and I think that uh, you know, kind of in in, in progress in your progress uh, after writing the book, you've continued in art world. Yes, and then uh, how that has kind of been an extension of this uh, psychological process of interrogation of your faith and of your belief systems. Mm -hmm. Let me expand a little bit. Uh, I know that you'd uh, learned a lot of uh, 
the Japanese technique of kirie, yes, uh, paper cutting, which you then uh, kind of used to adapt to New York landscapes. You talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, I think just in in living abroad and in just you know t- touching on what we were talking about, you know, we, I th- I think spending time abroad or, or traveling or living abroad, what what it does is it, it kind of opens your eyes to um, different cultures, different methods. And, you know, regardless of whether we want it to or not, it ends up having an impact on us where um, you, you get you get influenced by that. We, we're, we are an amalgamation of our experiences. And I think my art then ended up reflecting that that composite of all these different influences. Um, I ended up um, picking up Kyrie and taught myself. I saw a postcard one day and, and found out that it was just cut paper. I'd never seen the art before. And I started doing it with a box cutter initially. I just bought a box cutter. And then in New York, I got a uh, scalpel, which really kind of refined. It made it very detailed. And I, I started, um, I'd never seen that art applied to Western scenes. So, and it wasn't thought out like I'm going to be the Western artist who uses this Asian technique to, it just kind of happened organically. I just wanted to represent New York and I'd been living in Bologna after Italy for a while where my mother's originally from Bologna, Italy. So I just kind of, I liked the architecture. It it worked in this medium of art. So I started representing Western scenes through this very traditional Japanese and also Chinese art. Yeah, so I, I definitely see the progress as being um, an accepting of influences, and that, and through that accepting of influences, allowing it to uh, allowing that metamorphosis to happen, allowing that change to happen in yourself, and bringing you to a place where you could express that change through your art. Mm-hmm. So um, it's interesting that you use the word metamorphosis because one of the symbols, the symbol on my uh, the cover of my book, The Other Sun, is a butterfly. Which originally came from um, the idea that you know the, the butterfly flaps its wing, chaos theory, and you know a raindrop can hit, uh, or or butterfly can flap its wings and stir up some pollen uh, in a corner of Indo Indonesia, and that might make a you know a water buffalo sneeze, which causes a stampede, and how how that um, has an impact all over the world at every single little effect has an impact all over the world and to me the the butterfly symbolized that and i keep coming back to this image of the butterfly in my art whether it's in writing uh or now i'm working on a children's book where again the the butterfly and the metamorphosis of the butterfly is uh is central to that story so i just found it interesting that you use that word yeah definitely i think that we're definitely seeing a a picture or illustration of someone who has been on a personal journey um and how it kind of brought you to places which uh similar similar kind of motif of metamorphosis that you were discussing so we'll take a quick break and uh we'll be back to talk a little bit more um so thank you you're listening to the truth to power show on radio free brooklyn this is your host vjr nathan radio free brooklyn is a nonprofit organization and uh if you'd like to support them uh go to radiofreebrooklyn.com backslash donate or if you'd like to sponsor this show uh go to radiofreebrooklyn.com backslash truth to power 
and find out more, uh, you can follow me on Facebook at VJR Nathan Poet. I'm going to be doing some readings coming up on December 3rd and December 9th in Queens Library. So I find out more about that and the book Celebrity Sadhana or How to Meditate with a Hammer at VJRNathan.com. And now we're going to be listening to a musical piece by a band that I follow on Facebook. And I encourage you all to follow them as well at Facebook.com backslash Death by Piano. Uh, I discovered this piece uh, through that connection. And then uh, it's called Caves. And it's a very excellent piece that I appreciate quite a lot. And they're going to be releasing an EP in uh, winter of 2018. So definitely uh, follow them on Facebook and uh, enjoy the piece. It's called Caves. Thank you.
Okay, this is um, about halfway through the book. It picks up with uh, the character Victor, who the second half of the book kind of traces his story. Uh, from the first half, Kodadajal, um, he he kind of works towards um, you know leading to Victor's birth. He, you know, that that's kind of his his mission is to allow this child to be born. And uh, Victor grows up. He goes to college. And he has some, what could be called, you know, religious experiences, um, which he doesn't know how to explain, uh, but he finds them very meaningful. And um, he has about three of them, one when he was a younger child, and then one in college, and then one soon after college. He goes to Jerusalem because he's so preoccupied with uh, religion. <clears throat> and, um, he's you know, he believes that he should go to Jerusalem. And uh, this is him after having been um, put in a mental institution in Jerusalem because of this uh, this episode that he had while there. And uh, so this is him meeting with his therapist, whose name is Dr. Palir. And Dr. Palir, in trying to explain what's going on, uh, uses the variety of religious experience by William James just kind of as a starting off point. So... Um, it says here, Dr. Pallier leafed through the book and stopped at a page marked by a little yellow stick-on tab. He read aloud, To plead organic causation of a religious state of mind in refutation of its claim to possess superior spiritual value is quite illogical and arbitrary. If that were the case, none of our thoughts and feelings, not even our scientific doctrines, not even our disbeliefs, could retain any value as revelations of the truth. For every one of them, without exception, flows from the state of the possessor's body at the time. St. Paul certainly once had an epileptoid, if not an epileptic seizure. But there is not a single one of our states of mind, high or low, healthy or morbid, that has not some organic processes as its condition. He clapped the book shut and handed it to Victor. Take it home. Read through it. When you finish, when you finish that, I got more if you're interested. St. Paul? Victor asked, surprised. You think St. Paul had TLE, temporal lobe, temporal lobe epilepsy? I'm almost positive, and I'm not alone. I think a good part of the neurologists or psychologists who are somewhat familiar with temporal lobe epilepsy would diagnose St. Paul as a temporal lobe epileptic. But we can't give him an MRI, so we can only guess from what was left to us in his writings and his, in his historic records. He had a case of malaria when he was younger. His dangerously high fever may have damaged the temporal lobe. His description of his vision, the bright light, the voice of Jesus, it perfectly matches the symptoms of temporal lobe epilepsy. But it was the voice of Jesus. I heard the voice of Jesus too. Jesus himself was talking to me, not some faceless divine power. How can a seizure pick a specific character? Let me ask you a question. Was it Jesus specifically who came to you in the first vision when you were 10 years old? It was... I don't know, Victor sat down. He finally gave in to having this discussion. By the window, he was thinking that at the very least, if he truly believed in the otherworldliness of his visions, he should be able to form a defense against Dr. Pallier's diagnosis. Regardless of the outcome, he thought, he had been at least put in the company of St. Paul and was accorded the respect and importance he felt he deserved. I can't remember for certain if it was Jesus specifically, but I assume later in life that it probably was. Do you know why it wasn't Jesus specifically? Because at that young age, you weren't familiar enough with Jesus' place in your own faith to allow your mind to construct him in your vision. No, Victor shook his head. That's not... Listen, Dr. Pallier interrupted. 
Temporal lobe epileptics who were raised in a different culture do not see Jesus Christ. Why? They replace him with a person or deity that is meaningful to them. The unconscious mind cannot work outside of its own experience. But say I accept that, that St. Paul was a epileptic. Why didn't he have other seizures? Why, didn't he write some, why did he write some of the greatest theology the world has ever seen? He wasn't just some nut who... Wait, whoa, whoa, hold on, said Dr. Pallier. I never said anything like that. First of all, I don't like hearing that word nut or crazy thrown around. Secondly, temporal lobe epileptics are usually completely rational and intelligent people who may have had as few as one seizure in their entire lives. In fact, some temporal lobe epileptics may go on an entire lifetime without even having a seizure. I mean, that's not really true because they wouldn't even be considered uh, epileptics if they never had one seizure. But what I'm trying to get at is that they are normal, if you want to use that word, normal, fully functioning people who at some point are in a situation that can trigger a grand mal seizure. Just one of these seizures, as you know, can be so powerful, it can dominate an entire life of thought, especially in a time when there was no rational explanation for it, like in St. Paul's time. St. Paul's seizure happened to occur on the road to Damascus, and because of it, he devoted his life to establishing and defending Christianity. I mean, he displayed many of the other symptoms of TLE, one of the most common of, of which is hypergraphia, which would explain all the writing he did. You see, when there is this limbic hyperactivity, Dr. Pallier swirled his hands around his ears furiously to illustrate the mental disorder, some TLE suffer, sufferers become what is called hyper-religious, which basically means that they spend all their time reading, talking, and writing about religion. In Paul's day, the growing faith was Christianity, but I can assure you, that if the same exact person, St. Paul, was adopted in some, into some tribe in sub-Saharan Africa and still caught malaria and all that, he would have had a vision about some spirit or shamanistic deity instead of Jesus. So basically that passage um, is just, it just touches on something that um, I've picked up on in my dealings in the mental health field, that um, many people with mental disorders often are religiously preoccupied. And I guess the most important thing is, I was, you know, when the thought that came into my head was, where, where are all the prophets today? And in my work with the mentally ill, I've, you know, I feel like I'm meeting the prophets. I'm, you know, they, they're intelligent. They talk about God. They talk about hearing God speak to them. And, you know, and today we medicate them. And I'm thinking, you know, we have an understanding of the organic causation of that mental disorder. And in times when they did not have an understanding of that, it was chalked up to religious insight. Okay, so we're back with Alan Avadano, a good friend of mine. Um, and we were talking in the first half a little bit about your timeline and how uh, post-college, or during the college experience, you... Uh, we're interrogating your faith of Catholicism, and then uh, kind of part of that process was to write The Other Son, and we reviewed kind of that kind of material. And then, uh, so now we're at a point where you began to pick a career, and you went into mental health counseling. You did your master's in mental health counseling. If you tell a little bit about kind of what was the thinking behind selecting that career, and then we listened to a passage from The Other Son that kind of informs a lot of the perspectives on that. Sure. Um I guess, you know, while, you know, going to college, being interested in, in history and in religion specifically, it led me to psychology. Why, you know, again, why do people 
believe in the things they believe? Why do they think the way they do? Why do we have the wars that we have? So I started exploring it from that, you know, from that perspective. You know, when you're trying to understand human behavior, it leads you to the mind. And I guess I've always been interested in it. And it was just kind of a natural progression when I came back rather than pursue um, history. Um, you know, I did pursue literature and the writing of the book and, and continuing to write. But in, you know, establishing a career, since writers don't make any money, especially self-published <laughs> yeah. writers, um, I had to I had to pick a field. And I didn't want to be a history teacher. I didn't want to be a history scholar. Um, so I decided to focus on psychology and specifically, I didn't know at the time what it was going to be. I just got into uh, social work and in working in social work and in, um, specifically in uh, foster care and again, seeing very different patterns of behavior and, and starting to be more and more exposed to mental illness, um, I just became more interested in it. And I started seeing religion more through the lens of mental illness and, and how mental illness um, through you know the entire evolution of humanity has influenced um, religious beliefs, how the use of substances has influenced uh, religious beliefs, how you know different um you know even to this day the blood of christ is is celebrated as wine in the catholic mass um you know cannabis is used in, in many rites uh in religions around the world uh i believe it's called soma in hinduism mm -hmm. uh the you know native americans have peyote ayahuasca is used in in, in south america um and even in researching this book i, I came across um there's a passage in the book uh, in, in The Other Son where when Victor's in college, they're talking about um, can a cannabis oil that there's a theory that Jesus and the disciples used um, cannabis oil. Um, and that's where the word Christ comes from. Christ is, is the Greek word for anointed. Anointed means the use of oil. And these scholars found that there's actually a recipe in Exodus, which you can look up, which is the recipe for this cannabis oil. And that the kings, the ancient uh, Israel, uh, Hebrew kings used to be uh, anointed in this and it would help them commune with God. Uh, so this, you know, this oil has been recreated and it's, they believe that Jesus and his disciples used it to, um, you know, to calm epileptic seizures, which back then were believed to be demonic possessions. Um, so, um, at this point, when you're starting to investigate, uh, you're starting to explore social work and uh, you're getting into studies of... Um, mental health counseling and you're learning about kind of the uh, more of the on the taking it to more of the academic side as opposed to the uh, more I, I'm countering that with experiences you were saying about uh, the people that you worked with are more religious or yes and how that kind of what is the theories on what is the theories in, in the studies uh, done on this kind of material or that supports that or I mean you know I, I got kind of really interested in temporal lobe epilepsy for that, that there is, you know, there's a lot of, we're kind of on the cusp of a new understanding of the, of the human brain right now. Um, prior to this, there wasn't, a, you know, we didn't have the technology to kind of look at the patterns in the brain when people are thinking. And they're finding more and more that uh, certain areas of the brain are associated with uh, religious belief and certain mental disorders might be associated with religious belief. Um, there's, you know, just as a side note, there's something called the God Helmet. There's the work of a doctor, Dr. Ramachandran, who uh, uses this God Helmet. that They put it on 
someone's head and it stimulates certain uh, portions of the brain, specifically the temporal lobe. Fascinating, and, fascinating, yeah. And it, and it uh, allows for, you know, the, the people that are wearing this God helmet feel like there's a, a presence there. You know, they feel they're having, you mm. know, a somewhat of a minor religious experience just by stimulating this part of the brain. Um, but it's, you know, it could be associated with schizophrenia. It could be associated with bipolar disorder. It can be associated with many different types of mental disorder. And, you know, even to the present day, I mean, I was thinking all these thoughts years ago, but in my daily work, I meet my, you know, clients that are often religiously preoccupied and tell me of the conversations that they have with God. So it just furthers that notion that, you know, mental disorders existed throughout the ages and they might have been a little bit more prevalent in the past because it's often mental disorders manifest themselves as the result of uh, physical and, and psychiatric stresses. Um, and when there was famines, when there was, you know, um, lack of resources, um, there might have been uh, more of a prevalence to, uh, of mental disorders. And I believe yeah. there is an increase um, today, not just because it's being diagnosed more, but because our society is changing in such a way where, you know, we're more isolated and we're not um, doing the things that we need to do to, to maintain healthy bodies and, and minds. So that's why there is an increase in mental disorders in the present day as well. Sure. So in your work uh, with uh, people who have been diagnosed or uh, been work or dealing with these kind of symptoms or with symptoms of mental illness, uh, contrasting with, um, you know, kind of people who have not been in that system but have religious beliefs, Um can you comment a little bit, clarify or comment a little bit about how the connection between, you know, uh, or the parallel between uh, the, the illnesses and, and can you clarify a little bit about that? And, and Yeah, I guess, it, yeah. I mean, it comes back to, you know, a modern day believer will take their faith, <laughs> no pun intended, on faith. Yeah. They'll they'll take their this entire belief system, their belief of an afterlife, their belief of God, like all the big questions you know, many people will just kind of take that without exploring it because it's kind of been it's been passed down through the generations and they accept it. That's their culture. And meanwhile, they'll look at somebody with mental illness who believes that they're communing with God and and say, well, they're mentally ill and they need to be medicated. Well, I don't I don't think that's the you know, it's not the right approach. I think one, the mentally ill need to be respected and mental illness needs to be looked at on a um and a continuum that we're all we all have the potential for mental illness and you know this is again a side note but i I believe mental illness is um misinterpreted in society in this you know I, i equate mental illness to physical illness in the same way that somebody can have a significant physical illness like cancer um they can also have a very minimal physical illness like a cold Somebody can have a significant mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, but they can also have a breakup with a girlfriend and have a bad day. So we're all on this spectrum of of um, having um, the potential to have a mental illness. All of us. Um, so you're expressing the idea that um, mental the new prophets of this time period um, that they are kind of. Uh, can you elaborate? Yeah, a I think on? I think we we medicate away transcendent experiences and not, mm. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. I think, you know, medication and all of that is, is necessary, but, um, we, 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 we put these experiences that people of today will base their entire lives on. Um, you know, 
the, the thoughts and experiences of individuals living in a time thousands of years ago will set the standard for how for our morality and our belief systems today when there was such a lack of understanding back then yeah um and, and i think the good analogy would be the the uh kind of oft repeated thought of you know when we have an exam a fish isn't able to climb a tree you know the kind of the standardizing exam on climb tree climbing and thinking that the fish is stupid because he can't climb a tree mm-hmm. so kind of understanding what is normal human experience paralleling that mm-hmm. what is normal human experience and having that rigid ideas about that mm-hmm. kind of propagate the idea that uh people who have experienced mental illness are now outside of the norm mm-hmm. and need to confirm uh, um conform to the than what we've established as normal as a society, right? So, and then, yeah. in my in my in my point and my belief is that they are they are the norm. They're in the norm. The norm mm. is is all human behaviors, and uh, we owe you know a credit to you know this artist that had this this. So I think um, yeah, the know, connection between creativity and mental illness is well established. Absolutely, so. yeah. And, yeah. This, and the other son goes into you know I I stopped that chapter short, but. Dostoevsky, Lord Tennyson, Alfred Lord, Lord Tennyson, Lewis Carroll, uh, Beethoven, Lincoln, uh, Lincoln's wife. I mean, you could just go through many historical figures, and if you were to diagnose them today, you'd see there was a lot of significant uh, mental illness in the past, and it's all just part of the human experience. Um, so even circling back to we talking about history and such, the way which we tell the stories of these people mm-hmm. is highly sanitized to meet uh, expectations that of the norm and and fit the narrative that we have about what it is to be normal. So when people kind of uh, kind of the control the controlling idea of uh, how these stories are told. Mm-hmm. So when we think about Beethoven, we don't necessarily think about him being uh, you know this kind of way and this right. kind of. Well, there's, there's an absolute link to to yeah. creativity. There's a, yeah. there's a there's a very clear link to both heightened intelligence and lowered intelligence. Um, there's less mental illness in the in the, around the average IQ, but there's higher levels of mental illness among higher IQs and higher mental, levels of mental illness again among lower IQs. And again, it's all part of the human experience. And and again, it's just to you know um, give 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 credit to to the ages. Um, and 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 back just to the religious aspect and how we need to um, you know recognize our own um, our own journey. Uh, each individual needs to kind of explore uh, our belief system. Um, I, you know, I think it's 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 important to understand that a lot a lot of these uh, thoughts and a lot of these things that we base our lives on today were established in a time when there was much less understanding of of these issues um Mm. it just it reminds me of something that uh you know i don't think i have it all figured out but i was telling my dad some of this stuff at an earlier age and he said you know i was i was was kind of telling him a lot of things we're talking about um right now and he said you know you're not smarter than thomas aquinas and that kind of stopped me in my tracks and i'm like yeah i'm totally not smarter than Thomas yeah. Aquinas, 12th, 13th century philosopher, Christian philosopher. Well, he's and, not living in today's world, right? But then I'm like, saying, yeah. I'm not smarter than him, but I know more than him. I know, yeah. you know, I know that the uh, earth re- revolves around the sun. I know yeah. all scientific knowledge that progressed for the past 800 years. So we all have access to this information that he didn't. You know, yeah. he's brilliant, but he's living in his time and place. And so are the prophets and so are the religious leaders. Like we 
we we're we can benefit from everything that we've learned over over time and establish a new uh, morality for the present day. But we seem bogged down in our cultures, and I, and I think this you know leads to all the problems that the world you know it, it always leads to all the problems. The different ideologies lead to all the problems that we face throughout the ages, and I think we're seeing that. Uh, evidently now more than we have in the past 20 or 30 years. Especially since as we head towards the holiday season, I think people should remember uh, kind of it, not just take them as kind of part of the culture, but rather interrogate them as being opportunities for looking at one's faith, whatever it may be, and looking at how that fits into the larger system of society and how perpetuating certain narratives that uh, might be detrimental that we're all key to that so uh, kind of identifying within our faith how to interrogate them and understanding what's useful for us as people mm-hmm. and what needs to be discarded you know right. it's all a rich tapestry and we're all just one little strand and all as valuable as every I mean cliched but if if a few more people understood that we'd have a lot fewer problems essential truth i think yeah essential truth that needs to be acknowledged and amplified yeah Mm -hmm. so as we begin to close out our interview um we can talk a little bit about how all this connects to the themes of the show speaking truth to power sure uh and how you feel like uh our individual choices to do this process psychological process kind of uh how that's received by people and we're perpetuating these narratives, really, you know? Mm-hmm. And what, any thoughts on that? Or Yeah, I mean, what truth to power means to me, it's kind of what we were talking about, that I think we, we all have a responsibility to seek out truth. Um, it reminds me of Socrates, you know, the, the only thing I know is that I don't, I, that I know nothing. Uh, and the other quote, which is probably from somebody famous, but I remember it from Growing Pains, uh, the more you learn, the less you know. And I think... That was kind of my experience in life, and I don't. I'm not pretending to know much. I just know what works for me, and I and I I have made an effort to understand things better. And in doing so, I've become more uh, compassionate towards my fellow human beings. I don't think you know abandoning my faith led me away from being a good person. In in many ways, I think it made me a better person. Um, so I think that's that's kind of what truth to power means to me. In, in, in seeking out truth, we, we empower ourselves and, and our neighbors. True, true. Thanks so much. And um, all right, thank you for being here. And actually, com for more information about your work. And uh, thanks. And uh, we'll close out this episode. Thanks thank, so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. You just finished listening to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. This is your host, VJR Nathan, signing off. If you'd like to be a, a guest on the Truth to Power show, please write to truthtopowershow at gmail.com. And um, if you'd like your music featured or like to recommend a band, please also write to that address, truthtopowershow at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook at VJR Nathan Poet and support uh, local radio. Thanks so much. Take care. Have a good week.